this is a Marvel movie that made me feel like I was deep in conversation about something rather than just seeing a theme be played out in three acts. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. Because history has shown us that courage can be contagious. And hope can take on a life of its own. I will bring you hope, and I ask only one thing in return. We move now, together. Not at all. Hope is not lost today. It is found. Hope is what keeps you going. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it's your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no. You move. Welcome to Skiffy and Fanti at the movies. Wakanda forever. I'm Jen. I'm Trish. And today we will be talking about Black Panther with three very special guests, although one of them is actually the newest member of the Skiffy and Fanti team, and that is Brandon O'Brien, Justina Ireland, and Farida Batamosi. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hi. Hello! Hi! Hi! (laughs) So excited. So the reason that I say that Brandon is now actually a member of the Skiffy and Fanti team is he will be making his premiere next month on a brand new subcast of Reading Rangers called Reading Rangers Shorts. And they will be talking about short stories, which is very exciting. So welcome to the team, Brandon. Thanks for having me. And I'm really, really excited to be a part of the team now. We are very excited to have you. So first off, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? And since we have you as the newest member, why don't you go first, Brandon? Hi, I'm Brandon. I'm a Trinidadian poet and science fiction and fantasy writer. I am the poetry editor of Fire, a magazine of black speculative fiction. And I just like things and I'm interested in talking about things often. (laughs) you're perfect for podcasting of course (laughs) all right justina tell us about yourself hi my name is justina ireland i'm the author of the forthcoming book dread nation which comes out april 3rd of this year and i'm also one of the executive editors of prose at fire lit mag although i'm kind of incognito this year i've been letting troy do most of the uh, work and i also like talking about things (laughs) like brandon (laughs) Awesome. I love people who like talking about things, especially when they come on my show. (laughs) And last but certainly not least, returning for her second time with us, here is Farida. Welcome back, Farida. Thank you. Uh, My name is Farida Baramosi, and I am a Nigerian-American writer from New York City, and I also talk too much, so I am perfect for this. (laughs) (laughs) Before we started, by the way, Brandon was like, so, you know, if we go over an hour, you can release this in two parts, right? (laughs) So, it could happen. We'll see. I'm so excited to have all of you here to talk about Black Panther. It was just such an amazing film, and you guys have talked a lot about it on Twitter and in various articles, so I'm super excited to have you here to talk about it with us. Trish, why don't you give us the synopsis of Black Panther? 
Okay. We start off with an animated sequence that shows uh, centuries ago African tribes fighting over a meteorite that contained vibranium. Eventually, four of the tribes unite and the other, the Jabari, go off into the nearby mountains to kind of sulk. Centuries later, we show up in Oakland in an apartment in a high-rise. It turns out that the king of Wakanda confronts his brother, who was having something to do with a strike on Wakanda that stole some of the vibranium. Okay, then we go to the present day in an art museum, and uh, several people steal artifacts from, uh, from the museum. T'Challa returns, having found out about his father's death, and he is acclaimed as the king of Wakanda after fighting the Jabari leader. They start tracking the museum thieves because they think that they can recover artifacts and also finally punish uh, Claw, the guy who they think was basically the ringleader of the earlier attack on Wakanda a couple of decades ago. So they go to seek him, and Martin Freeman turns up as a CIA agent who wants them to back off and just let him deal with the arms dealer, but things go sideways, and there's fighting and shooting, and they try to capture Claw, and they do capture Claw, but then when he's being interrogated, his friends from the art heist break in and save him, or take him away anyway. So, T'Challa returns empty-handed to Wakanda, very much disappointing one of the leaders of the tribes there. Then it turns out that one of the art thief heists was Eric Killmonger, the son of the king's brother, whom it turns out actually killed his brother for being involved in the arms deal. So, Eric comes to Wakanda, fights Black Panther for the leadership. Black Panther falls off a cliff. Everyone thinks he's dead. He is deciding to use all the Wakandan technology to provide it to help the African diaspora all over the world rise up against their oppressors. And eventually, it turns out that Black Panther wasn't dead. And there's lots of fighting with cool, cool stuff. And he beats Eric, but he doesn't feel very good about it. But in a happy ending, it turns out that Eric kind of changed Jachala's mind anyway, and they're going to do outreach to the rest of the world instead of hiding away with their technology. The end. That about does it. <laughs> I was surprised by how much there was in this film. So before we started this podcast, I was like, hey guys, how do I possibly narrow down the conversation about Black Panther? Because there's so much to this movie concerning the fact that it's still only a two-hour film. But before we talk about any specifics, and by the way, uh, you already had spoilers in the synopsis, so I probably should have warned you about spoilers before, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. This is a conversation about a movie that you should have already seen twice. Before we go into specifics, though, I would like to get everybody's sort of general impressions of the film. So, Farida, why don't we start with you? So... Of the people here, I probably went into the film with the least amount of anticipation. I was super excited about the film, but I actually don't like Wakanda in the comic books, which was partly for the reasons that it get addressed in the film, the fact that it's extremely isolationist and xenophobic. So I went in and was very surprised that they actually addressed that particular issue um, and ended up really loving the film and being very excited about what was explored in the film and the representation in the film. So I love the film. I'm so glad to hear that. Justina, how about you? 
Yeah, so I have always looked at Wakanda as kind of a a fantasy of the diaspora. That the fact that it's and part of Africa that's not touched by colonization, that's not touched by the shadows slavery. It's kind of like this idealized version of what could have been. And so I was really excited to see that on the screen. And I know there's been some criticism of the way that Ryan Cooler kind of incorporated all these different kind of cultural touchstones of different African ideologies. Like, you know, there's this whole problem with people think of Africa as like a place instead of a continent. And he kind of like, you know, cherry picked different like styles and and stuff from different parts of Africa. But as a part of diaspora, as someone who can't trace their lineage to an African nation, I thought that was awesome. I thought it was cool. And I thought it, it fulfilled the same kind of fantastical uh, imagination as Game of Thrones does for white people. And I think that's kind of like, for to me, the important thing I took away from this is like, this is basically that kind of fantastical, historical, but also modern um, and futuristic kind of ideology um, of blackness that the diaspora needs and doesn't get ever. And so I was, I loved it. I loved every single minute of it. And also Shuri, because Shuri just ruled the movie. So yeah, it was awesome. Shuri is officially the best Disney princess. So I mean. Seriously, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Trish, why don't you go next? So I really, really enjoyed Black Panther. I can't say that it quite blew me away to the extent that Get Out did, but it's still, I mean, it's its uh, an amazing movie, and it made me feel really, really happy. There was always something interesting to watch, always something interesting to go on, I mean, going on, and there was so much to think about after the movie, uh, so it kind of resonated through time instead of just being that experience, and... It was beautiful, and there were a lot of beautiful people to look at, which I enjoyed. It was just, and and the conversations that they had throughout the movie about, you know, what what is the right thing to do, and how do you address responsibility. It was just a wonderful movie. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. I mean, I came out of that with a major crush on M'Baku, personally, so (laughs) I can't say I disagree. (laughs) Brandon, why don't you go next? People have asked me this question before, and I've struggled to find the words, because I think that the words are, I went into the movie thinking I would have just gotten superhero shaft, and came out of the movie the first time I saw it. (laughs) Being, like, kind of awestruck by the fact that even though Marvel movies are particularly good at really expanding on their themes deeply and considerately. This is a Marvel movie that made me feel like I was deep in conversation about something rather than just seeing a theme be played out in three acts. It felt like it was deliberately trying to trigger conversation. Like, I feel like the conversations we're having right now about the movie aren't just black people latching on to something that they can call their own and just milking all of the discourse for all of that it's worth. But I feel like those things were purposeful. And the fact that a superhero movie can do that for us is really radical to me. I think that five or six years from now, we're still going to be kind of in awe of the fact that it will have that power to have that kind of conversation among other people. 
And that's one of the things that still strikes me about the movie right now, beyond the fact that it's just a kick-ass movie. I think that that aspect of it that you just talked about in terms of the conversations that it inspired, they seem like conversations that at least America as a country for sure is already having, and they've all been put in front of us in a film that I never expected to see them in. I might have hoped for, but certainly was not expecting as much nuance as we got. When I first heard about Black Panther coming out, I was excited just because I was really excited about the fact that we would finally get some some good, hopefully, representation, especially with Ryan Coogler at the helm. And then I watched Creed, and I had... Creed is probably in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. It was so gorgeously rendered a film. So I had even more hope for what Black Panther could do. And I think it delivered on every single count that I had in terms of what makes the MCU something that I've really enjoyed over the past decade. Not in every film, like some of them I just straight up hate. Avengers Age of Ultron, for instance, I'm just not gonna, you know. I've been like a major Winter Soldier stan this whole time. It's my favorite MCU film. Or it was until I kept looking more and more into what Black Panther did. Black Panther didn't immediately become my favorite film after watching it. But the more I thought about it, and the more I read about the influences on it, its place as an Afrofuturistic piece, and I kept thinking about, you know, female representation, oh my god, just all those things that Ryan Coogler and the team did so perfectly that it has like slowly but surely at least now tied for me with Winter Soldier. I just really love Winter Soldier. I'm sorry. And it's also just a gorgeous film. Like taken out of the MCU, it holds its own as something really powerful and hopefully not unique as we move forward. Hopefully we see more films that are just this beautiful and great with representation. But I'm not interested in my own opinion this evening. That's why we have you guys here. But I wanted to first get you three to kind of give us an overview of what Afrofuturism is and where Black Panther plays into that conversation kind of specifically before we talk about everything else that is happening in this film. So, Justina, could you talk a little bit about what Afrofuturism is and how it applies? Yeah, so um, (laughs) Afrofuturism at its basis level is just the idea that Black people exist in the future, which might seem radical, except the fact that Black people don't seem to exist in any other time period in any kind of literature except for civil rights and slavery. So, like, this idea of Afrofuturism was, I'm going to give you the, the Justina Ireland Clip Notes version, which is basically a white dude looked at the writing of Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney and said, hey, this is not, doesn't conform to the ideas of what we consider science fiction and fantasy to be. And black people are kind of radically reimagining themselves in, or imagining themselves in the future and imagining themselves in a future that doesn't necessarily restrict them the way the modern day does, this is Afrofuturism. And since then, Afrofuturism has kind of like blossomed and grown to become anything it needed to be at the time. Like Jonelle Monet music has been referred to as Afrofuturism. There's an Afrofuturism music festival that happens in, um, I think it's Atlanta every year. So it's just kind of like this idea of 
I mean, it's, it's so silly because it feels like, why do we have to say that black people exist in the future? But when you look at a lot of the, what we call the quote, golden age science fiction and fantasy, there are no black people in the future. So it, it became this, you know, this necessity. Nowadays, I would say anything in which the modern day problems of either Africans or, or the black diaspora are addressed within the text has become labeled as Afrofuturism. So it's become this kind of loosey-goosey term that we just kind of throw it around to mean like there are black people here, which is, I mean, I, I think is is good in a way to kind of like give people a heads up so that when they're looking for it, but at the same time is, has become reductive in some ways where like we call things Afrofuturism when it's like historical fiction or something else. I'm curious though, swinging to you, Farida, if you can kind of comment because as you said, the Wakanda, the comics particularly is xenophobic nation, right? And they touch on that in Black Panther. But how does that sort of relate, do you think, to sort of the ideal of Afrofuturism, how it took what was in the comic books and reshaped it for the film? I guess for me, Afrofuturism is a is a person who is like a science fiction and fantasy fan. Afrofuturism is like uh, Justina was saying, corrects a problem that already existed. So it's uh, a good portion of this media excludes people of color, uh, especially black people. So Afrofuturism kind of shows, it, it takes bits of our past and seeing what would happen without, um, frankly, it's kind of a good portion of Afrofuturism also kind of looks at what Wakanda theoretically is. Like this idea of what it means, what blackness would look with futuristic tech and futuristic ideas and what aspects of African past would be applied to an African future. So like what concepts of the past would still make their way through the future if we're looking at this imagined world. And I feel like Wakanda does that. But like, I guess for me, it always felt like Wakanda was also a comment on the fact of matter that the only way black people can essentially get to that point is if they do it completely separate from whiteness, but also completely separate from other types of blackness. So like, I always thought that was like a weird choice, but I do like that Wakanda kind of exists in a world that kind of interacts with other people with their war dogs and all this other stuff. So they're, they, they interact and they take what they, they can, and then they also make it better. So like, I guess it's, it's an interesting take, but I do like the idea of mixing what used to exist, the, the African past, this um, cultural background and bringing that to the future as well. So it's not just essentially white conceptions of what the future would look like. It's taking what is culturally black and culturally African, and then bringing that to the future as well. Really quickly, and I think this is the appropriate place for me to ask this question, because I remember one of your misgivings that I saw on Twitter is that you were concerned about how Black Panther might be looking at Africa or is looking at Africa through the African-American lens. So I'm curious if you still felt that way after seeing the film. Hmm. I still think the film is very... uh... African-American, um, just because there's aspects of the African like continent as it exists now that wouldn't necessarily jive with what Wakanda looks like. So like we can go into large discussions about whether or not um, this is colonization's influence or not, but like Africa as the continent has very strong patriarchy and very strong gender roles. So like um, I remember reading a conversation between two African people talking about Black Panther and the conversation was they loved that Wakanda had this where women could just do their hair a certain way. Women got to be equal within the space because that's not necessarily true in a lot of African countries. So like um, this ideal was also just an ideal that existed even 
like it's an ideal that hasn't been reached in Africa in general. So like there are little things like that, but also just like conversations, like engagement levels, accents. But like I still thought it covered the diaspora really well. But it it does feel like it's more a Black American view than necessarily a complete diasporic view. But I could be wrong. I mean, that's just my particular reading of the situation. Right. So what about you, Brandon? Going back to Afrofuturism in general, and then why don't you pivot into your thing that you wanted to talk about? Me trying to keep track of all of the things that in my head I immediately want to talk about whenever this movie comes up is a thing. But when it comes to that question of what Wakanda looks like in terms of what communities it ultimately represents... I think I have a lot of the same kinds of ideas and concerns that Farida does, that a lot of how it frames itself and its diasporic conversation is uniquely through the lens of african Americanness. But I understand why I would feel that kind of distance from it, because where I am in the diaspora as an Afro-Caribbean man, those things don't happened in the same ways. We haven't had those same kinds of creative conversations at the same time for lots of different reasons. But it still spoke to me in the sense that that theme of the work of the conflict between traditionalism and modernity and the conflict between the continent of of Africa and the rest of the diaspora was particularly important to happen in that space that it, it it was important to me to see people who were supposed to be africans have the conversation of well there are people who look like us all over the world and we can actually make life as good for them as it is for us which i care about i like being able to have conversations about blackness that include me in that sense that a lot of the ways that the media talks about blackness is through an African-American lens because it's being made through an African-American lens, which is not a bad thing, but it means that even that tiny aperture through which we can have conversations about the fact that the diaspora is a large space that contains a lot of different people all going through the same historical context of... Uh, suffering and consequence was a big deal. It felt like I was being noticed in some small way, which I particularly really appreciated. And I think that the movie is very good in particular at talking about the diaspora in a wider sense than just capital B Black and trademark. Being aware of the fact that there is a wider experience that not necessarily refers to the United States alone, but refers to global blackness and global black struggle. And seeing somebody struggle with the question of, we have all of this power and we can use this power to make the world better for all of the people who look like us. But we don't know how to do that because we also need to keep into consideration that whiteness tends to be evil and will seek our resources for its own gain. I thought that was neat. I thought it was apt to have that conversation in that frame as opposed to, like, I wondered the very first time that I saw it if we needed to see 
those kinds of suffering for people to appreciate the fact that they were talking about the diaspora, and I'm glad that it didn't. I'm glad that it was happening in the kind of bubble of King T'Challa growing up in this rigid, isolationist society and deciding to pop that on its own, or more accurately, Nakia popping that bubble for him, for him to consider the consequences of people who he had never met, of which I am one. I thought that was... I personally appreciated that. Right. So, I think the interesting thing, because the three of you are coming from different positions in the diaspora. Justina, as you mentioned, you can't track your family back to a specific African nation. Farida, you're specifically first-generation Nigerian-American. And Brandon, as you just mentioned, you're uh, Caribbean. So you're coming at this presumably from slightly different positions um, about the film. So Justina, how are you feeling in terms of your the lens that Black Panther was constructed through? I think, like, for me, Black Panther was constructed through a lens that felt familiar, and mostly because you have the point-of-view character of Eric Killmonger. So, like, I, I thought it was interesting, like, when we were doing the wrap-up of the movie, the, the description of the apartment building was a high-rise apartment building. That's public housing. Like, that type of architecture, it's like a very 1970s-based kind of architecture. If you've watched The Wires and they talk about the towers... Um, if anybody, anyone who's ever lived in public housing knows what that architecture looks like because that's what public housing looks like anywhere you go because it was all built around the same time period and all kind of like this very, you know, American, like <laughs> the American construction is very good at, uh, especially government construction is very good at like just kind of replicating the same design over different places. So like when we're like, when we have that scene in Oakland, like, that's a very diasporic scene, right? Kids playing on a playground. They're playing basketball. They're not playing baseball. They're not playing soccer. They're not playing anything else. They're standing outside a high rise, which is very much public housing, right? So this is, you know, this is, we're talking about section eight. This is, this is poverty. Um, and they're having this conversation about robbing something. And it's kind of like, it's kind of a very American lens, right? It's a very American view of the diaspora where the disenfranchisement's there at every single level. Every shot is showing you the disenfranchisement. And then you see, like, the spaceship come down, right? And it's like, here's the king, and, and things all of a sudden shift, just that, that small degree. So as an American's perspective, I think the movie did a great job of looking at our current day problems. And, I mean, it takes place, starts in the 90s. So it looks at those problems that were the problems in the 90s were problems that are problems now or problems in the 70s or problems in the 60s. It's it's a great job of looking at those those issues and kind of and breaking them down in a way that feels familiar, but also different at the same time. And so I think it I mean, like, I don't disagree. That's a very American uh, way of looking at at the at the problem, at the idea of diaspora. I think Eric Killmonger is like the most American of antagonists because his idea of fixing the problem is shooting people, which is kind of what we're really good at here in America, right? So like, I think this like this idea of of war and like, hey, we have a problem, let's just shoot someone, is something we we're, we recognize. Like that is our identity as Americans. Is like you know the revolution and we kind of rose up and like you know threw off our British oppressors. So like. I do agree that this this whole movie throughout uh, throughout the movie is very American. It's a very American idea of Africa. I don't know that American movies necessarily always invite 
in other perspectives or other cultures. And I think that's what we're seeing here with Black Panther is that, you know, it's, it's very much a movie that was made for an American audience and then also kind of takes into account the American, the American Black diaspora. But I think for, especially for the Black diaspora America, we don't get that. Right. Like we don't get invited into the room. We don't get like the kind of the superhero. We're going to save the world kind of pictures. Um, like I I just like think about, you know, the movie Hidden Figures, which didn't come out. I think it came out last year. Right. And that was like the first movie where you had seen like black women like like in history, like saving the day, but not like civil rights, not like the help or not like, you know, any kind of like, you know, we, we all bonded together to beat you know racism kind of thing and so i think that's that's what this movie does well is it takes this idea of existence and struggle and it and it ties it to a superhero origin story which is not something we get to see especially as 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 american um as black americans and as you've mentioned you know it also ties it to the creation of the villain very specifically in eric killmonger and the fact that like to an extent they imply that his creation is because of what t'chaka does to his father more his his present situation and his present ideas of how to liberate other black people is very much created by America, very specifically in terms of our, you know, sort of military industrial complex, which I thought was a really interesting aspect of his character. Yeah, and I think it's a great point that Kugler brings up, this idea of an all-volunteer military means that the people who volunteer are the most desperate. Like, I think, I think, like, a lot of, I don't, haven't seen a lot of think pieces that are kind of tying this back, but, like, I was someone, I was a kid who joined the army because I wanted to go to college and couldn't afford it, right? Like, I was Eric Killmonger, right? Like, I was the kid who, like, lived in, in, like, a shitty kind of part of the world and, like, was like, I need to get out of here and the, the army is going to do that for me. So I think he's also making, like, I think that's one of the reasons this movie works so well is it's making so many different statements at the same time and it's com- it's commenting on so many different aspects of American society but then also, you know, international society at the same time. To me, it was amazing how it managed to do all that without actually even muddying any of them. <laughs> I, I came out with more clarity on certain topics, I think. I want to kind of speak on some of those things, uh, because when Justina had made the example of what public housing looks like, what that scene, that opening moment looks like, it only just it's been there all the time. It was a thing that I always noticed, but I never found the words for it to say that a lot of Black diasporic experience looks the same, even though it doesn't have the same innards all the time. Because that scene, when I saw it the first time, looks like a lot of slums in Trinidad as well. The The part where some of those things differ is while when you witness that kind of diasporic struggle, it looks the same. But as Justina also mentioned, Killmonger is a uniquely American kind of villain because violence is a very American kind of response. But what's particularly important to me, and I've mentioned it before, is the kind of emotional core of his struggle is still a very 
universally diasporic one. Not only the frustration that colonialism and capitalism has created this kind of stranglehold over black identity and black experience, creating poverty, removing resources and opportunities from them. But that while you're also dealing with the fact that you live in a Western world that doesn't love you, you have no connection to your home. And it's particularly like more dramatic for Killmonger because he knows where home is. It's Wakanda. I know where it is. I can see it on a map. But I still don't know anything about it because I couldn't have lived my life there. And those kinds of frustrations are uniquely Black diaspora frustration. It's just that he tacks on military might at the end of the solution to his problem in a way that we can see where that source comes from. We can see that that's an Americanized source, but it is arguably the greatest creative distance between his experience and, I think, a lot of other diasporic experiences. Because I don't want to pick up a gun and fight nobody. I can't do it. I'm sorry. Ha, I'm still mad that he's dead. (laughs) So am I. I wanted him to be redeemed. I wanted Nakia to slap some sense into him. (laughs) You guys, it's the Marvel Universe. Anything can happen. (laughs) This is true, but he shouldn't have had to die for it to happen. But then he wouldn't get that great line at the end. Like, he got his line, so he got to die. Right, that's the best line. That is literally the best line. The emotional gut punch with that line. I don't think we've had in a single MCU. <laughs> like, we've had some good lines in the MCU, but not not with that many layers to it. I think one of the reasons why Black people can say that Killmonger is the best villain in the MCU is because a lot of the times when he spoke, he was speaking directly to us in ways that like we got. Like, not only in the sense of, this is a Black movie with Black people in it, speaking about black things but when he says something i'm like yeah you're right though i don't i i this is not the solution to the problem but i know i know this feeling and that last line was one of those moments like you shouldn't you shouldn't be this extreme but if i were this extreme this is what i'd say yeah i think him dying though is also a very powerful commentary on colonization the fact that like, you cannot dismantle the master's house with the same tool, the ma- tools of the master, right? You cannot beat colonization by colonizing. Like, if he had survived, there would always be this doubt that, like, maybe war is the answer. But because he dies, and because he dies this very like, poetic death with a fucking sunset, excuse my language, with the <laughs> sunset there, it's like this very, like, like, you know, it's like this very, like, beautiful scene, and it's like the slowest scene in the all of the movie. Like, you're running through the entire movie, and then you get to the scene, and you just kind of, like, rest. And it takes so many beats. Like, I think it's, like, a very powerful statement that, like, yes, we are the diaspora, and we have to, like, fight, and we have to change things. But colonization... And becoming like our oppressors is not the answer. And I think if he had survived, that inkling of maybe it could be the answer would persist. And so I do think it like his death is like very symbolic and like very beautiful. But I also think it has makes a very powerful statement. Going off of that, because I think this is something that we all want to talk about, but I'm going to let Farida start with it, is one of the ways that Eric Killewanger One of the reasons that he was so powerful a figure in the film was because he had, in a sense, a foil 
in Nikia. And Brandon, you mentioned this as well. And the fact that both concluded that Wakanda had the same problem and that the world could be helped by Wakanda, but their answers to it were completely different. And as Justina just mentioned, you know, that becoming the colonizer is not the answer. And that's what Nakia told him at the very beginning. But one of the things I found really interesting about that is that it's not just Nakia who who leads T'Challa originally to that thought. I realized, because I rewatched Civil War, and I had forgotten that part of the reason that T'Challa's father, T'Chaka, is killed is because he wanted to take the same path that Nakia proposes. They have to become part of the world in order to help the world. But he's killed. T'Challa then is coming into this with that as a very fresh wound. So Nakia saying, you know, but we have to do this, he's still reacting from that. And I thought that was kind of a fascinating aspect of the MCU as a whole and and T'Challa's sort of arc over the course of the two films. But I really actually just want to talk about Nakia. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to let you take it away from here, Farida. Tell us about the ladies. So for me, um, I wrote a piece right before the film came out talking about how it was important to me in the early reviews that everyone was talking about how amazing the women were in the film because I was going into the film for the women. Uh, just because even though I wasn't the wildest on the Wakanda, I love the Dora. So like I right. always was really excited to go in there and see the film and see what they did with the, the female characters in the film. And I was very happy to see many layers of how they used women to tell stories. And even the absence of women, how they would tell stories through the absence of women in certain characters' life. So first, like one of the greatest things about the film is that they changed two very some might say problematic aspects of comic books. The first was the Dora were not wives in training, which I was very happy about. That was a weird Mm. thing about the comic book. And I was just like, please don't do that. And then the other thing they changed, which I guess comes from also the wives in training thing, is Nakia is completely different. Nakia in the comic books is like in love slash obsessed. And she's a Dora. In love slash obsessed with T'Challa. And then he keeps um, rejecting her. There's some weird magic-y thingy in which he kisses her by accident and he's like super disgusted. And then he like banishes her from the Dora and then she goes crazy um, and becomes malice and becomes a villain who attacks him. Uh, I'm so glad they changed all that. So I was just like, ooh, Nikia's in the film? Please don't do that. And then I was like, oh God, Nikia's not like, then you see the scene inside the trailer where they're holding hands. I'm like, I guess Nikia's not his crazy ex. I don't know. So I was like, so I was really excited with the changes that were made. But like for me, it was really interesting. I mean, some of it's, I don't know if Ryan was doing it, uh, Ryan Kluger was doing it on purpose, but like the film also felt like a movie in which a lot of men were making lots of mistakes and not listening to the women and the women fix the things in the end. So like T'Chaka decides to make this choice and not tell nobody, not his wife, nobody, that he made this choice. T'Challa then, the difference is, I guess, between T'Chaka and T'Challa, T'Challa immediately after finding out confides in Nakia. And like, you see that shift because like, his confidant, his, his closest confidants are women. And they give him measured answers on how to respond to this situation. And then even in the scene where he fights um, Killmonger, the final scene, Shuri turning off the train helps him. Even Umbaku, Umbaku almost gets murked, but Okoye stops in the middle to like, and then the rhino like uh, flicks her face. And it's so, like, it's a film in which, yes, 
the men are heroic, but they would not survive without any of the women. Like even <laughs> the, the very first Jabari who comes into the fight um, is actually a woman. <laughs> and I was just like, hey, it's hilarious. <laughs> Awesome, because like it's just women kissing, kicking butt again. But also, like it also made me think about the fact that she might have been one of the ones who was like grunting and making the 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 gorilla noises. And I would have thought that would look really interesting in the Jabari world. But like I was just like, <laughs> yes. So like for me, it was a really fantastic film and how important women are to every aspect of Wakanda and every victory in Wakanda. And that the only like m- like the big death scene we see is the scene where the Dora goes Wakanda forever and then she dies. Of the of the bruises, the only one that's really given like this, like the two that are giving moments, of course, Killmonger's moment. Claw just has his like villain moment, his swan. Claw dies off like, screen. Yeah, he dies off screen. But like the two deaths we've seen are Killmonger's and the Dora. Yeah. And those are important deaths. And I like that that was that was a that was a value judgment that um Cougar makes within the film. But I also love that juxtaposed to that, the fact that the women in Killmonger's life are so disposable. Like we never know what happens to his mom. She's she has no on-screen time. She never even shows up. And like, and then on top of that, like his girlfriend is disposable to him. So the film is also fundamentally saying not only are women important, but the lack of women fundamentally shifts the way that your worldview works. It also like it makes it hard for your plans to reach completion. Because like mm-hmm. the girlfriend was also for each one of his plans like super necessary like she's the one who's messing with all the cameras and all the other stuff and she's no longer there he gets to wakanda and it doesn't work also every other scene that killmonger has has him like fighting a woman so like i feel like the idea like this conception of the women are necessary that you need to treat the women as equal and if you don't you won't succeed Mm -hmm. and i think that was embedded in the film and i loved that message this idea of you need the women but like more than that i think i love that in the end the, the way that's chosen, like, I don't, I think it's less that it's T'Challa versus Killmonger and Killmonger moves T'Challa in a certain direction. I think the film literally saying every, both of the men are wrong. Killmonger is wrong because he's completely fueled by his anger. And though a lot of people seem to be missing this, like Martin Freeman says like a million times in the movie, he's one of ours. Yeah. And I feel like that is literally the reason why his character exists in the film. I know some people have issues with that, but he's literally there to show you that Killmonger may be saying the right things, but he still is just CIA. And again, he just is America, American imperialism, like represented with the grief. Cause like, even the first time he looks at the screen and then he's looking at, he's like, who is, uh, who's Killmonger? And he's like, oh, he looks American or blah, blah, blah. He's like, no, he's one of ours. When they're discussing his plans, uh, Martin Freeman's character is like, he's one of ours. And I loved, I, I liked that the character existed to show that what Kill- Killmonger is fundamentally is, it, it's warped grief and then what America can do to that, like how Americans can shape that to, to, to further their interests. But like Nakia exists and Nakia and the assumption is Nakia can be who she is because she comes from this place that never forced her to be in the same position Killmonger is. That she can be um, a person who wants to help without automatically assuming that's violence. That the violence aspect is white supremacy. It's colonialism. The because the thing is like it's not that she's completely against violence. She was beating everyone's butt, and Lord knows when she, she finally got to wherever the point she was going to, she would have eventually broken all the women out of who had been enslaved. But the, the thing, the best thing I thought about Nakia was in that scene where T'Challa is about to essentially beat up the kid. Um, and even though this child has been shooting at T'Challa for like 30 seconds, Nakia stops him and goes, he's only a child. He's just scared. And I thought that was 
fantastic because for me, it meant that Nakia not only wanted to save people, but also recognize how systems corrupt people. Like that that child maybe in a year might be a person who might actually kill T'Challa. But in that moment, in that, that week of time, he was just a scared ch- child trying to defend himself. And I loved what that meant because it wasn't that she simply wanted to save people, but she understood how people, like how power and these systems of oppression warp people. So I feel like if she had met Killmonger when she was younger or she'd been in that position, she might have been able to help Killmonger. So like that, I felt like that was what the film was kind of addressing. Like that kid could have become Killmonger later on if he'd been in the system long enough. So... I loved Nakia and I loved that her message was the one that eventually became the fundamental message of what Wakanda does next. I also love that she didn't want to be queen. Um, she just wanted to save people. I still got the feeling that at the end of the movie, she still might not have been as queen. She was just like, I'm still going to keep saving people. And I thought that oh. was fantastic. And for me, I thought like what I like, I just really appreciated that the film looked as women as these holistic but equal individuals who help right. to build things but they're they don't exist but they're allowed to be their own person they don't exist simply to serve a male character they have their own opinions and in the end one of their concepts is actually the best concept forward like you have these two men fighting it out in the end it's actually the woman's idea is the one that rules and i really appreciated that moment i also really appreciated that at the very end um i don't know if it was intentional or not but the shuri goes over to a group of young boys right. and is going to teach them only because we have this narrative of, I mean, not to bring it, but like A Wrinkle in Time just had their poster up and someone made this really bad take. And in that moment when she said that, I, all I could think about is Shuri walking up to a group of six boys who wanted to know how this spaceship worked. And they were looking up to her, surprised and wanting information. So like this conception that men can't learn from women, like, fundam- like I feel like the film is also contradicting that idea. This idea that men cannot learn from women, men should learn from women. Women, like, and I thought that that was a really cool, like, these little moments that, like, I felt were, like, talking about the ways in which we engage with women and men, the way that relationship works, and how we should challenge it, and how Wakanda challenges it. Can we talk, also talk about how Shuri is telling um, Watson Hobbit, I can't remember Martin Freeman's character's name ever, like, for some reason, my brain just keeps (laughs) washing it through my brain. He's just Watson (laughs) Hobbit to me. Yeah, the second you said that, I was like, I have no idea. CIA guy. CIA guy. I have his name written down in front of me right now, and I forgot it too. Yeah, Everett Ross. Yeah. Ross. Ross, right. But how she is literally fighting on the battlefield, and she's trying to tell his dead ass how to fly this this plane, right? <laughs> and he is like this, like, this decorated pilot. She's like, you're a pilot. You should figure this out. And he's like, I don't know what's going on. And so she's like, so like, I just thought that was such the best moment that encapsulates, like, the burden of being a black woman, right? Like, she is fighting the battle and she still has to stop what she's doing to help his dead ass figure out what he's supposed to do i just like think it's like one of my favorite moments of the movie is like she's just like she is just like doing her best and then she has to stop what she's doing to help him do his one job he had so i just wanted to bring that up because i feel like it would be i'd be remiss to let it let it go past without mentioning (laughs) honestly i cannot think of another film period that takes the title character and doesn't actually make him the complete focus of the film because there was so much balance between him and Nakia and the other women that are in this film. I mean, like, let's look at the fact that Denai Guerrera, that Okoye is probably fights just as much as, if not more, than Black Panther does. 
mean more. Like, I feel like she, like she's fighting more on screen than he is. T'Challa's dead for a good portion of the movie. Like, most of the <laughs> second act, he's dead. And you're like, oh, well, you know, it's cool. Like, he has got this handled. We're good. The coolest thing we're about fine. him being dead was everyone was just like, okay, we're moving on. Like, it was, I mean, they were sad, but they were just like, okay, what's the next step? <laughs> right. And Nakia's the one leading them. You know, like, she's like, all right, we're going to go hit up the Jabari. And, I mean, Ramonda and, and Shuri definitely aren't passive in that plan. Because I don't think anybody could ever call Angela Bassett passive. And I'm really glad that we finally got to see Storm in a film, even if she wasn't playing Storm. But my heart, my heart. (laughs) God. She was, right? With those white dreadlocks. Like, how like how are you gonna do us like this, Marvel? Like, I see what you did. I see you. And and I was there for all of that. But yeah, I mean, Ramonda and Shuri definitely there nobody could ever call either one of them passive. But Nakia's the one leading that. And and she is ready to take Wakanda into the future. And I thought it was really interesting how they showed the conversation, the fight between Nakia and Okoye about serving Wakanda versus saving Wakanda and how Okoye decides to stay behind. Because, you know, unfortunately, she's like, I serve whoever is on that throne. And Nakia is like, that throne is Wakanda, and to save it, you need to leave. But Okoye ultimately decides to stay behind. She changes her mind later, thank goodness. But I thought that was a really interesting point-counterpoint between them. Yeah, but she but she still is serving tradition, right? So like, even when she changes her mind later, she's like, the challenge isn't done. Like, so that's why she changes her mind. Like, so, so Okoye never really changes in the narrative. Like, she, her character arc is steady. Like, she still is serving the idea of Wakanda and tradition and what they stand for. It's really Nakia who is like, we need to change, we need to adapt, we need to become, you know, we need to welcome in the outside world, we need to, like, lower our walls and, like, fix the, like, take care of our neighbors. Like, we we owe it to our neighbors to to help them in their time of need. And I think that's, I think that's a really powerful statement. It's a very modern globalization kind of perspective and i think that like even though we're talking about a fictional african nation i think that's something that resonates within america because we are at this crossroads in our own history where we're like are we gonna build a freaking wall and (laughs) keep everyone out or are we gonna like realize like that this is globalization like we have to be able to and we have to be willing to like embrace the people who don't look like us and and share our wealth across the globe. And I think that that conversation is such a, it's such a like that's what works so well in this movie is there's so many like small moments that build into the whole. Like it's like a lot of these a lot of like I like I love the MCU. Don't get me wrong, even terrible movies like Doctor Strange which I just rewatched this last weekend which is freaking awful. But like let me just say, like I love that the MCU like it has heart. Like it really does. Like they're really trying to make like big statements in in uh in these superhero movies. But I think that's what shines within Black Panther is that their their nuance builds into these really big profound statements without even trying. And I th- I think that's like that's the whole like the core of that push pull is that idea of like what do we owe our history? What do we owe our past and to compare to what does the future ask of us and trying to like raise ourselves up to that, to, to answering that call. I think with Afrofuturism, 
Like, even though we're looking to the future, I don't think Afrofuturism really works without looking to the past because we have to acknowledge that past of both oppression and, and what's happened to actually move forward. Um, I'd like to jump in and talk a little bit more about Marvel um, and, and messages. Uh, way back in the beginnings of Spider-Man in the 60s, the theme Marvel explicitly named of with great power comes great responsibility. And certainly Marvel, the company, does not always do that. We could name some really terrible, horrible, horrible, horrible <laughs> things that they've done with Captain America, turning him into a secret uh, Hydra Nazi. So Marvel has fallen down very badly on the job sometimes, but... I think, you know, a lot of the theme of the comics has been what do you do with power and what kinds of responsibilities do you have? And, of course, a lot of that time, Marvel's power does involve punching people and defeating them and enemies. But there, there are also some social themes. Um, with the Black Panther comics, um, he was originally just a, you know, novelty character, almost, with the Avengers. But then in the 70s, with Don McGregor and Billy Graham, who was the uh, first black artist at Marvel, if I recall correctly, Black Panther didn't have his own title, but he was kind of the recurring star of a comic called jungle action. And their first big storyline was basically the story of Eric Killmonger. But in this case, Black Panther had been off doing stuff with the Avengers for a very considerable period of time, maybe years. Um, and so Killmonger basically arose from Wakanda to fill the vacuum there. And then later there was the fighting the KKK storyline. So anyway, I haven't followed Black Panther three, through the years, so, uh, you know, I was distressed just now to hear about the Nakia storyline. <laughs> but he's a great character, and I'm sorry it took him so long to get to the screen, but I think they did just an absolutely wonderful job of realizing not only his character, but Wakanda, and I'm super impressed at how with all the messages that are in this movie uh, and how integral they are in the movie it's not just a message movie it's you don't come out of it feeling like you've been beaten up by dialectic <laughs> there there's a wonderful warmth and wit and humor throughout the movie too that's one reason that shori is so valuable as a character and, uh, you know, she makes stupid puns about, guess what I call them? Sneakers. <laughs> you know? I laughed way too hard at that joke. Way, way too hard. And it was, you know, it's, it's, it's a silly joke, but it was just funny. And it, um, the whole scene there just indicated what a loving relationship uh, Shuri had with her brother. And it was really... Um, an uplifting movie. There are certainly some sad things to think about in the movie. When Wakabi told T'Challa, you know, we don't want to let refugees in with them into Wakanda because refugees bring their problems with them, there was an audible groan throughout the theater that I was in at that moment. But there are, you know, also so much fun and laughter and just enjoying all the beautiful 
visuals of the movie, the texture, the costumes, the weaving together of various elements of African culture, which, you know, having the different tribes united as Wakanda helped to give excuse for that, I suppose, Um, you know, instead of trying to come up with a Wakandan culture out of whole new cloth. Um, I thought they there were just so many beautiful things to look at in the movie and so many fun action scenes, uh, just fun elements with war rhinos uh, and things like that. I just think they did a wonderful job of weaving everything together. Yeah, I think it's also important to like really think about the fact that most of the people who watch the Marvel movies are not Marvel Comics fans. Like A lot of the people I know who go and see these movies faithfully have never picked up a comic and they have no intention of picking up a comic. Um, one of the things like I like I don't buy Marvel comics anymore just because I'm not going to support Nazi Captain America or kind of, you know, biphobic Iceman or the, a million different other problems that they've had throughout the comics throughout the years. And I wasn't like a big fan, huge fan of Ta-Nehisi Coates's run of Black Panther. Like I think like, the first few of shoes were great, but like there was a, a moment where I was just like, eh, I don't, I don't, I'm not digging it. So like, I think, I think it's important to understand that like a lot of the people who are coming to Black Panther are coming to this. This is the first MCU movie that they're seeing. This is the first time. Like when I, like I keep telling the story to folks and they're like, are you serious? Like I went and saw it Thursday night, my theater, I went and saw it like the second showing of the night. Like my theater was not full. Like there were tons of seats and half the people got up and left. After the credits, like, like after the first extra scene, they didn't stay for the extras. So, like, I think, like, when we talk about this movie, we have to realize, like, this is a completely separate thing from the comics. Like, we can tie it back to the comics, but most folks who are, who are watching this movie, who are taking away messages from the movie, they have no baseline for that. And that's kind of amazing that, like, this is a thing that has brought people into the theater completely de- separate from the comics. Like, if anything, it's in it's in conversation with the comics to the extent that it's it's calling out the comics for some of the crappy things that it's done over the years. Um, and obviously some of the good things, but like you take Mbaku's character, Manape, which is one of the worst stereotype characters in the comic book series, and they turned him into Mbaku, the character of Manape is never mentioned. It's been thrown out with good reason, and what you get instead is my biggest crush in the film, and also a really interesting character and facet of the Wakandan world building. I think one of the interesting things of Nakia going to the Jabari is the fact that this tribe has divorced itself from the west of, rest of Wakanda precisely because of the technology in the past, but then in the present, M'Baku as the character, as the new leader of the Jabardi, is actually more concerned with who is in charge of the technology and the fact that it's Shuri, which granted, don't you dare question Shuri ever, but it's a valid concern of himself and his people of who is in control of this technology and what is it getting used for. And I thought that was a really interesting just world building aspect. And I am so glad that they took the comics and that the comic book lovers can still, you know, sit down and enjoy this film as just an amazing adaptation. But they can also see where Ryan Coogler has gone. Mm, that's not such a good thing. Let's get rid of that. Maybe we should re-examine what the comic books were doing with some of these characters, particularly in the past. 
And I really appreciated that aspect of Black Panther and a lot of the things that the MCU does in general, but I think Black Panther particularly did a fantastic job with it. I agree. There's lots of people who are walking. I went to the screening with someone and like we missed a train as a result, but they were just like really mad at me for staying through the credits. I was like, there's another credit scene. And they were like really mad at me. And then afterwards, like the next day, they're like, did you know the guy in that last scene that you made us watch is like another character in Marvel movies? I'm like, yes, yes, I know. I've seen every single one. So I feel like I know it's connected to anything. I was like, yes, it does. So like for me, like, it is, I mean, but some of it's also, like, I think some of also the discussion, though, would, I appreciate the people walking to the movie and being able to watch the movie and see it as a, as a sec, like, it's its own entity, and then it right. exists in the frame. But, like, I also do think that some of the conversations that are happening around the film could be made more honest if people recognize that it was part of a Marvel conversation. Because, like, we, I love the movie for what it is, but it still is very much a Marvel movie. There's very much a Marvel formula at work. And... A Disney formula. Yeah, there's very much Disney formula at work and there's very much a Marvel formula at work, which is the reason why when a lot of the conversation about whether or not Killmonger is a villain started up, I'm like, but he literally has a similar like character arc. I mean, his motivations are fundamentally different, but he has the same, he has a similar character arc to a good portion of the villains within Marvel. Um, Someone did this fantastic um, article about how the reason why Marvel has a villain problem is because Marvel's villains are rarely actually completely wrong. So like, the, so the thing is like, you, they don't seem as malicious. Now this person, the motivations are much better. Like the motivations, what drives Killmonger fundamentally makes sense. The way he goes about it is wrong, which tends to be Marvel's villain um, formula. Right. It's a person who, may, I mean, sometimes like it's like Loki, but like Loki gets to live. But like the ones who don't get to live tend to be ones who may have a good point, but the way they're going about it is fundamentally wrong. Um, like the end of Doctor Strange, you have a character who's essentially like had to live a certain way, his life a certain way, lose people, and then get told, oh, everyone breaks the rules actually. So like, and then he becomes a villain. So like, it's, that's kind of Marvel's formula. So when people go, he's not a villain, I'm like, but that's kind of how Marvel villains are. But then they're just like, oh, but Marvel. I'm like, no, but it does exist within this Marvel framework. And there are other aspects of the film that feel very Marvel. So like, I do think that, yes, being able to walk into the movie and be able to just take it for what it is um, and enjoy it is great, but I also do think that some of the conversations could be shaped a little bit better by the fact that, like, you are watching a Marvel movie that is, like you said, T'Challa is just coming off seeing his father killed while speaking at a UN meeting that's about peace accords, and then that the end of this movie is fundamentally setting up for another movie in which a big bad is coming. So yes, the the ending had to end with them embracing the world and feeling like they need to be part of the world because the world's about to be in danger. So like there were there were starting points and end points for the film that were like necessities, not necessarily like because Black Panther was naturally going to go in that way, but because where it exists in the Marvel Universe requires it to. Right. But when I say Marvel Universe, I mean separate the MCU verse separate from the comic universe. So I don't think when you look at the comics, like we don't have these villains that are like, ah, yeah, that guy was kind of right. Like I think about like 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 entries into the Marvel universe, like Mockingbird, where like all the villains are like solidly villains where like, you're like, that guy is just not okay. Um, and you kind of, you know that they're like very much the bad guy. I think, I think the Marvel, when we talk about the Marvel comic universe, we have these very morally gray villains because that's more compelling 
than necessarily like the Bond, James Bond bad guy. Like I would say like that's why Marvel, Marvel villains are so great because we actually are kind of thinking like they have a point, like you said. Like I think when you have a villain who is very much like mustache twirly like he's the he's the Voldemort claw for instance right like claw <laughs> right claw like even though claw is like very silly it's like he epitomizes everything about colonization right he's a white dude from South Africa like he's like who's trying to like like loot like like ancient African artifacts like he is just like there is nothing morally redeemable about him he's not interesting as a villain because he's just so very villainous but then you have Eric Killmonger who was like, that dude's got some points. Like, I don't necessarily agree with his methods, but his philosophy is correct. And I think that's what makes moral, I think that's what makes Marvel villains great. Like, I think that's why you, we like the Lokis. I think that's why we like the Hellas. I think that we, that's why we like stick with this franchise is because like we introduce these villains and they're like, you know, if, if everything was like Red Skull where he's just like basically a Nazi, like we're like, ah, oh, yeah, he's totally dude. That dude's totally bad. Like, there's no, there's nothing we're cheering for. But like, we like those villains, and I think, I think, you know, we talk about Marvel, and we also you have to tie back to Disney and like, you know, Lucasfilm because they own that as well. But like, think about Darth Vader. Like, the, what makes Darth Vader like redeemable is like, because you know, like that guy, like he went to the dark side because he fell in love. That sucks. I don't think the Marvel equation is different than the Disney equation. It was different than the Lucasfilm equation. However, I do think the movie equation is different than the comic book equation. And I think that we see that just by the way people respond, right? Like people aren't like lining up to buy Marvel comic books. They are lining up to see the movies. I think that was one of the interesting things about Civil War as a part of the MCU is the fact that, I mean, in a very big way, Civil War is setting up for Black Panther more than anything else is, and more than anything else that it's doing in and of itself. I mean, yeah, it'll probably come into play into Infinity War, but frankly, I don't really care because the interesting things that happened in it were things like the fact that T'Challa sits down and talks to General Zemo at the end of the film and stops him from killing himself so that he can actually serve time, that he can pay for his crimes. And also with the fact that T'Challa is very much coming off of T'Chaka just being killed, right? Those are the really interesting things about Civil War that are leading into what happens in Black Panther and Killmonger as a character and as a villain, right? Because as you say, for the most part, a lot of these villains, the ones that are right especially, or at least partially right, most of them die. And you don't necessarily have those moments where one of the heroes sits down with the guy and finds out why he's right. Because Zemo had a perfectly valid reason for trying to tear the Avengers apart. Clearly, he went around in the completely wrong way, but he had a completely valid and understandable reason. And the same thing happens here with, with Killmonger. And it was almost like a, a shift in where the MCU was going for the future. Except, of course, right now we're going straight back into a big bad that nobody actually cares about his motivations because he just wants to destroy the universe or something. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in how this is going to go. Because I think a lot of people are kind of like, 
hyped for Black Panther and not so much for Infinity War. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Like, like I think there's opportunity there for this, this to be, like, kind of, like, a pretty cool, deep, meaningful movie. At least for, like, Captain America and Black Panther to, like, have this conversation. Because they kind of, you know, don't have the best relationship right now. But, yeah, I totally agree with the, the freaking timing of the the big bad and everything is just kind of like meh we just got such a nuanced film and now we're going back to the avengers i'm kind of intrigued for a lot of the same reasons that justina mentions that uh, the mcu is separate from the comics i haven't read a comic since i was like 11 and i don't have the money to start now i went i went to the second viewing of uh, I went the second time I went to see Black Panther. I went with my mom, who knows nothing. Full stop. And she was like just as engaged in that movie and the other Marvel movies that she's enjoyed in ways that I know she would never enjoy uh, the comics. And one of the things that kind of struck me as you all were having that conversation was that you mentioned Civil War. And Civil War, the movie, is radically different from the very first Civil War in the comics. For lots of different reasons. But when Civil War was announced, when the movie was announced, people had expectations of what kind of movie it would be. And a lot, a lot of my, like, hardcore comic fans were kind of disappointed that it wasn't that in its exact entirety. But if it were, it would have probably been a bad movie to watch. And it's part of the reason why I wasn't actually hyped for Infinity War at all. Because Infinity War as a movie is supposed to do things for people who read the comics. It's supposed to be a fight. It's supposed to be two hours of people baffled by the fact that they have to fight a god. I don't care. There is no, like, interesting question being asked by fighting Thanos because there's nothing that Thanos offers us to be questioned by. Killmonger asks a question. Um, whoever the villain was in Doctor Strange, because his name never registered for me, had a question. Zemo has a question. There is nothing, like, what do I need to fathom about space that Thanos is going to teach me? <laughs> but somebody's going to watch Infinity War because they think that it's going to live up to the hype that they experienced when they read like, the first collected paperback of the comics. I didn't, and even if I did, it wouldn't make a good movie. It would make a good comic book, because you get to imagine a fight. But on screen, I can see the fight in high depth, but I need more than a fight to be sustained. Uh, 100% agreed. I'm literally probably only going to the movie for a couple reasons. One, obviously, I, I'm kind of a big fan of Captain America and the Winter Soldier. Uh, I'm excited to see Bucky back. And two, Wakanda forever. <laughs> yeah. They actually apparently have just moved up the release date for Infinity War, presumably to capitalize on the fact that people are still and will be for the next forever uh, excited about Black Panther. I don't know if it's actually that reason. I really think it's because they're terrified about what Solo is going to do. Because we've like... Like so, solo. solo you think it doesn't matter. It's the same company. Like, 
<laughs> like they're worried about Solo not doing well. Like oh, they don't want to give Solo oh, more competition. I got you. <laughs> I got you. Wait, Wait, what? No, no, like no, like they're like they're worried about Solo yeah. not doing well. They don't want to yeah. give Solo another reason to fail. <laughs> ah. That that makes much more sense. But my point is that like it it is super exciting that Wakanda is going to play, at least it appears to be playing, a major role in Infinity War. I'm hoping that, you know, it's not just a set piece for one scene. It could be, though. I don't know. Because I think they've... Ryan Coogler, Ruth Carter, and I forget the production designer's name right now. They've created an absolutely amazing world with Black Panther. And I hope we get to see it more in the future. I have a feeling we're going to get like 20 more Black Panther film. I hope we do. Uh, Or just a Shuri film. I'd be cool with a Shuri film. I'd be so down for a Shuri film. I want a Shuri TV show. (laughs) Or TV series. (laughs) Has to be a TV series. Yes, a Shuri TV show. Shuri merchandising. Uh, Yeah, this cast, I think, overall was just absolutely amazing. So... Do any of you have any final things that you are, like, screaming to talk about in terms of this movie? I do. Okay. It's Shuri. <laughs> Perfect. Every Everything Shuri. Everything about Shuri. I, I preface by saying I also got really excited when Letitia Wright got cast in the movie. And I feel like Shuri as a character as we've all noted several times, stole the show in multiple different ways. Not only because she's the funniest member of the cast by far, but one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting with her character is she is the research and development person on that team, but she doesn't perform nerddom in the ways that we typically assume of either children or um, young black people in movies. She gets to be funny. She gets to know things without sounding overly jargony, which are things that I kind of like because I, I we've experienced enough media, I think, where black nerddom is seen as like this uniquely stiff thing, if that makes sense. The IT crowd, is that what you're referring to? <laughs> I was going all the way back to family matters, but that's a good point too. Where uh, black people being nerds is the joke. Where they are like constantly proving their own knowledge to other people. But that's not the fact, that's not the truth of Shuri because she knows things and people know that she's the smartest person whenever they meet her. And she doesn't have anything to prove to anybody. And she, she'll she make fun of her brother, who is the king of the country that she lives in. Because that's just who she is. And she has um, no filter. And the, like that kind of characterization for a character who is essentially a nerd, I appreciate as a nerd. I, I like that she gets to be the more entertaining member of the cast. Not because... People are laughing at her for knowing things, but because she's uh, enjoying herself and not being like watered down by the people around her. I really admired that. And then she's also the person who literally makes the thing that 
keeps T'Challa alive, which is another layer of the constant reminder that women are always right in this movie. Yeah, that they are. I can't think of a single moment that I was like, nope, you're just doing this wrong. Farida, any final thoughts? Okay, so I'm going to have a silly moment. So I really appreciated the movie, and I even liked that there was lots of mixed the clothing design and that there was lots of different aspects of Africa represented. But some of those accents were hurting my soul. <laughs> <laughs> the, the power of the Black Panther was <laughs> all stripped away. I was like, what is going on? Uh, I knew that and would then, bother someone. And then, I mean, you know what? I can't even get mad at her because she's 91 years old. But the lady from Atlanta just sounded like she's from Atlanta. Like she, <laughs> I was like, she's not, I'm not going to get mad at her. But like that, like that was my one little bone of contention. Because, like, it was, like, it was fine with the clothing being from different parts because it melted well, but the accents were, like, a little bit. Like, M'Baku was from Nigeria. Um, the South African actors were from South Africa. Uh, but the, the Kia was from um, Kenya. Uh, Denai sounded a bit like she's from Zimbabwe. I know she's from Zimbabwe. But, like, it, it sounded a little off. And then, like, and then I don't know what Chadwick was doing. So <laughs> there's just lots of different... <laughs> Yeah, and then Forrest Whitaker was doing like an exaggerated version of his version of Idi Amin, which was already. <laughs> like, I was just like, all right, so, okay, that's what we're going to do. But like, I mean, I loved it. It was fun though. Like, I remember I was sitting next to like two Nigerian people, and then Mbaku started speaking, and we were just like, oh my. <laughs> and it was like, it's cool though, because he's like, he's, it was clearly Nigerian, but it sounded like a Yoruba person who like, did not learn English like directly was le- like miming what English sounded like. So I was just like, okay, this works for me. Uh, but it was cool. Like that was my only thing. Like, but it was like, it was funny. It was like, it was very entertaining. That's the one joke that tends to like, that's like going around that I find really funny. The one thing people are willing to accept was a little bit off, but it was fun. I mean, Forrest Whitaker's um, shipping of the Black Panther thing will like literally like be legendary. Like people are going to be saying that line for forever. <laughs> But it's Forrest Whitaker. I love the man, so he gets a pass for everything from me. Trish, any final thoughts? I love how the whole movie gels. You know, it's not like there's parts that stick out or 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 that you know seem like they're hanging loose a little bit. It just it just really all worked so well together for me, and I thought that was something. Something really good. I mean, yeah, there are a few plot lines that I could quibble with a little bit, but um, I, I just loved the story as a whole. Absolutely. And Justina, any final thoughts from you? Any final squeeze? <laughs> um, nothing on the movie, but I do want to mention that the Cloak and Dagger TV show should be coming out soon in America. Ooh. And I yes. I'm super excited for that because I think if if Marvel holds true to what is becoming its brand, it should be interesting. I like how you say in America because I'm pretty sure local cable here yeah. in Trinidad doesn't have a station that will yeah. show it, and I'm sad. It's it's so you might be able to download on the app. I was at New York Comic Con this year, and they were they were pushing it, and it looks looks pretty awesome, like what they were showing. So hopefully, it holds true to the comics because those are. Uh, like we always talk about, we t- talk back back to the comics. Those are two of the comics characters that I feel like haven't really gotten a great 
um, film adaptation. They've got, gotten a couple of, like animated adaptations that were kind of eh, um, via Disney XD, kind of a secondary characters in different episodes. But like, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So that's my last word is to look for that and support it when it comes out so that it will actually get a full season run, hopefully. Or more. I'm hoping the same thing for Black Lightning, which I have not been able to watch myself. It's so good. I've been watching it, and yes, it is good. It's amazing. And with Black Panther's success, I think we're already seeing some, hopefully, anyway, but today I saw that Lupita and Viola Davis, they have a, like, now they're going to be in a movie about a group of women who like are a military group in africa it's the dahomey the dahomey amazons Ooh. yeah they actually repulsed uh all everyone who tried to invade them in the 1800s and never were colonized yeah that's that yeah <gasps> that's what the it was like it was supposed to be a movie it was supposed to be somewhere else and it got kind of shelved and now it's now because of black panther i'm into that yeah so my final thoughts are it's an amazing film that's all you really need to hear from me thank you so much all of you for being on the show really quickly if uh each of you could tell us where our listeners can find you brandon go first i am on all of the social media accounts that matter at the rising tithes that's t-h-e-r-i-s-i-n-g-t-i-t-h-e-s um i'm most active on twitter and of course you can find um fire uh literary magazine at firelitmag.com and read all of the awesome things that we have um put together for you to enjoy definitely everybody should do that because fire is amazing uh justina you can also find me at all the social media that matters uh, i'm justina ireland it's j-u-s-t-i-n-a I-R-E-L-A-N-D. And by the social media that matters, I just mean Twitter. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Instagram as Justina I, and you can find me on Facebook as Justina Ireland as well. Um, and you can pre-order my book, which comes out in April, Dread Nation, on any of your favorite retailers, your favorite indies, and so forth. Um, and Brandon already told you where to order Fia, so that's all I have. And uh, we're very excited you're hearing it here first. Justina will be back on to talk to us about Dread Nation. Yay! Yay! So that'll be really exciting. And last but certainly not least, Farida. Hi. So I'm on Twitter as well. My name is at Too Much Telly. I watch a lot of British television growing up. So that is like what I go by. And I just, I'm a freelance writer. So you could just like look up my name, Farida Badamosi, and you can find some of the stuff I've written. And also, if you happen to be a person who goes to film festivals, I work them. So maybe I'll run into you there. Awesome sauce. And thank you, Trish, for coming along for the ride with me once again. Always appreciate it. Thank you. So thank you, listeners, for joining us today on our newly renamed At The Movies. And thank you so much to all of you, Justina, Brandon, and Farida, for coming on the show today and talking to us about Black Panther. And with that... Awkward ending and scene.
Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can find us at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at our email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com, on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, and on Facebook at the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Our intro and outro music comes from Dimension by Creo. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org.